Welcome to Salty Moms Gone Sober. Whether you are a sober, curious, salty individual, can't seem to stay on the wagon, or have some successful sober time under your belt, our podcast creates a safe and comfortable space to let it all out. We can't guarantee anything but a good time and chill vibes. With a dash of humor, genuine language of the heart, and a salty truth throat punch here and there, Connect with us on this unpredictable wave of sobriety. And when we find ourselves choking on a mouthful of saltiness, let's stop waiting to exhale and just spit some truth. Without further ado, your hosts, Alyssa Gruskin and Brie Juarez. Hey, Alyssa. What's going on, girlfriend? Not much boo thing. I don't know about you, but I fucking feel like my brain is a thrift store right now. And I have to like sort through all this bullshit to find this hidden gem or something that in reality only I think is cool. And I'm hoarding just like a bunch of shit in my head today. Speaking of gems, we have quite the gem on our podcast. You don't want to talk about my mental issues right now? No, mine are worse. It's like Walmart in my head. It's not a thrift store. Ew, that's just, <laughs> I'd rather be in the, thr- in the thrift store. So, Alyssa, I would love to hear about this hidden gem that we have. Would you like to introduce? Yes. yes. So tonight we have Martin Lockett. He is from Pennsylvania. I guess that's where he's located, not where he's from. And we're super excited to have him on here tonight to share his story of addiction, recovery, and hope. Martin, whenever you're ready, you can take over. Thank you so much for having me. It's truly an honor to be here. And so just to give some background information, not spend too much time on it, but so people understand the context. I grew up in Portland, Oregon in the 80s. And for anybody who is uh, semi-familiar with Portland, it was entirely different back then than it is today. So back then, it was essentially a war zone. There were gangs coming up from California fighting for territory. I remember the crack epidemic had burst onto the scene. So there were, you know, these gang wars. There was drive-by shootings almost every other night seemingly there there were you know prostitution and and needles on the streets and it was it was it was a cesspool if I'm being honest with you and so however fortunately I had the good fortune of being raised by two very loving, nurturing parents in the household. And so my dad would work to take care of the family. Mom stayed home to take care of us kids. I had a twin brother. And I remember my dad had us enrolled in Little League and Cub Scouts and Pop Warner football and, you know, wrestling and all these extracurricular activities. And now that I'm older, I think about it. And I think he was mainly doing all that to keep us so busy that we wouldn't have time to be influenced by, you know, the streets. And it worked until we got to high school. So for me, I was a terribly shy kid. And when I got to high school, as many kids quickly come to understand, it's basically a death sentence if you don't have anybody to hang out with, right? So that pretty much left me at anybody's mercy who would be willing to accept me and to to allow me to belong to their group. And so this led to me taking my first drink of alcohol at the age of 14. I remember we were at a party and we were hanging out with this guy. He was a notorious gang member, but he was only 15 years old. So one year older than we were, but everybody knew him. The guys feared him. The girls loved him. We were hanging out with this guy because he was a friend of the family. So I remember we're at this party and he hands my brother and me a beer. And then he goes off into the crowd and starts, you know, mingling with other people. And we're standing there with these beers, looking at each other, thinking, 
Like, there's no way we can drink this because mom and dad would absolutely kill us. We were not raised this way. However, understanding the situation and, you know, knowing that if we're going to be kind of hanging with this crowd and and running with this group, you know, we got to drink. We have to do it. Everybody's doing it. And so I remember I took a few swigs off of that disgusting liquid. And all I remember initially was my chest had heated up and then all my inhibitions came down and I was able to freely socialize without, you know, breaking out in a cold sweat and I'm able to talk to girls without, you know, fumbling over my words. And I was so enamored with with that first encounter with alcohol. And I'm thinking this is a miracle drug that is allowing me to finally be the Martin that I've always wanted to be, right? The Martin that I felt was buried under this timid shell of shyness can finally emerge and show the world who he is. And so that was my infatuation with alcohol for a couple years. It was a social lubricant and I relied on it to basically have a social life and to gain acceptance and to be a part of the the in crowd, so to speak. However, that became exacerbated over the the next couple years because by 16, I was a full-blown alcoholic. And this meant I would drink before I went to school in the mornings, during my lunch breaks, and after school. We would steal alcohol from the corner store. We would wait outside the store after school to have people buy alcohol. We'd give them a dollar or two, and they'd go buy us some 40 ounces. And we'd go hang out in the park and drink all day and night. And, you know, that quickly turned into me drinking in isolation. And so I remember I would literally come home from school, lock myself in my room, turn on some sad music and drink until I passed out at 11 o'clock that night. And then we'll wake up and do it all over again. And dad was working swing shift at this time. So he was gone until midnight. And my mom's health had deteriorated to that point to where there was no way she could rein in, you know, 16-year-old teenage boys who were just, um, you know, prone to running the streets at that point. And the reason why, quickly I'll say, the reason why my drinking, uh, you know, went from just a social a social lubricant to, um, you know, something much darker is because I was grappling with an identity crisis at the time. And so what that meant was on one hand, I would hang out with my friends in the hood. I wear the, you know, the gangster clothes and carry the gun and sell the crack cocaine. And then I had a, a, a job at an ice cream parlor outside of school because my parents were adamant that we have uh, part-time jobs. And so all of my coworkers were white and I would hang out with them when we would get off work, we'd go shoot pool or, or go bowl or what have you know what have you and I would literally bring a spare change of clothes to hang out with them which was Tommy Hilfiger and Ralph Lauren Polo and all this preppy stuff and change my vernacular and 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 do anything I could to feel like I, I would fit in with them and so I'm literally trying to navigate between two social groups and honestly not feeling like I belonged in either because I mean I was you know becoming a chameleon in each group for acceptance and so this this conflict was such a heavy weight that it was it was it was too much for me to to try to cope with and it was just easier for me to just drown it in alcohol and so that became that became my best friend until it wasn't so did your parents have any idea that you had a problem with drinking so so they did and honestly, we never had any heart-to-heart conversations about it. I, obviously, my mom knew that we were drinking a lot because the bottles were in the room. And, and you know, she, she saw my friends coming in and out. And we smelled like alcohol, of course. And I guess if I'm, if I'm trying to understand it to some degree, 
I guess because we were drinking at home that she felt that, okay, well, I, if they're going to drink, I'd rather them drink at home than drink out in the streets, even though we did both. I mean, really, you know, yeah, we drank a lot at home, but then we certainly drank a lot um, in the street as well. And so they did know, honestly, I felt like, so my mom was the disciplinarian. My dad never laid a hand on us. He was, you know, he left that up to my mom. And like I said, my mom's health had deteriorated so much. She was in and out of the hospital. My dad was actually having an affair with the woman that he was working with, and my mom found out about it. But she couldn't she couldn't really leave the the marriage because, like, you know, his insurance paid for all of her medication, and it was just it was just a bad situation. And so I think depression kind of took over her. You know, she just didn't have the the energy, quite frankly to do anything about, you know, our, our indiscretions at the time. So what time in your life was it when you drank that first beer at that party with your brother? I was 14 years old. You were 14 and mm -hmm. you felt that euphoria come over you. Here emerges this Martin that is talkative, too smooth for lotion, just hanging out, <laughs> loving being around people. But it sounds like isolated drinking came very soon after. You weren't living it up partying for very long. So you're already at a young age starting to have to drink before you go to school, which many of us are. But our isolated drinking, generally, you hear coming later in life. Yours came at what age? At about 16 years of age. And again, that was because, so it was in large part due to me not understanding who I was. And, and quite frankly, I, I felt that there was a ceiling, a pretty low ceiling on my life and my potential. And I, I'll explain why. So, so when we were in Cub Scouts, I remember this, this first encounter when I was like 10 years old, and my dad had taken us to a Cub Scouts meeting about 15 minutes away in a predominantly white neighborhood, right? So we go to these meetings and it's manicured lawns and it's clean streets and nice homes. And, you know, it was the total opposite of what I had grown up in. And so in my 10 year old brain, I started to draw this correlation that all white people live like this and all black people live the way that I live, right? Again, very concrete thinking, I'm 10 years old, I don't fully understand everything. But this is what I internalized. And as I got older, and that's generally what I saw because I lived in like a 90% black neighborhood and it was impoverished and all of that. And so I was starting to think that there must be something inherently wrong with me and anybody who looks like me if we are confined to live this way and all the white people, right? Of course, we know it's not the case, but all the white people, as far as I understood it, were, you know, were, were privileged to live that other way. And so that, that made me feel inferior I had a complex. I'm constantly striving to gain the acceptance of other people and to fit into this world that I honestly didn't feel like I would ever be accepted into, but I was constantly striving to do that. So that's why I would wear the Tommy Hill figure and the Ralph Lauren Polo and change the way I spoke to gain that acceptance, to feel that I was, you know, somebody of, 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 of value and import, but it inwardly never really truly feeling that I was. And so just that, just that, 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 that sense of, of not being adequate, never measuring up and all these things, uh, it really took a toll on me. So that's why you know, it was just easier for me to drink and, and to not have to deal with those really tough feelings at 16 years of age. And your brother, your twin brother, did he have similar feelings about this? Not at all. And so even though we both started drinking 
at the same time and you know the, the the behavior looked the same he was not and still is not to the like he couldn't care less what people think about him right i always had to look the part and dress nicely and 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 he would just it didn't really care right he wears some some wrinkled jeans and a you know a wrinkled t-shirt and he's like whatever right think about me what you will and so he was not he was not so sensitive to what other people thought about him and so his drinking, uh, he was able to to curb it around 18 years of age when he went off to Job Corps, got trained as a carpenter, and he's been doing it now for, what, 25, 26 years now, and he loves it. And so he he definitely took a different route, and I went a totally different route, as, as we will soon talk about. Let's learn a little bit about how this isolated drinking looked for you how long it lasted, what it turned into. The isolated drinking, so it wasn't, so I, I drank in isolation a lot in my late teens and early 20s, but I also very much drank in public. Like I went to the clubs every weekend and I'm, you know, uh, uh, drinking ex- excessively with my friends. And so pretty much if I was awake, I was drinking, right? Literally at seven o'clock in the morning on the weekends, I would start drinking before I had a piece of toast. Even though I held down a job and, and you know, never had any issues at work. I was working at a warehouse at the time. I got off work at 3.30. I went straight to the store. I bought four 24 ounce cans of Old English, which was disgusting, but it was like 8.3%. And as an alcoholic, you just want to get the most bang for your buck. So that's what I did. And I would go home and consume those my girlfriend would get off of work about 5, 5.30. She would come home. We'd have dinner. I'd drink more hard liquor at that point until about 11, 11.30 at night. Go to sleep, wake up, go to work, do it all over again. Literally every single day for 19 months leading into the reason why I'm here talking to you guys. And so what that looked like was on New Year's Eve of 2003, I was 24 years old. I was working at a warehouse in Portland. I lived in Vancouver, Washington at this point, which is just about a half hour north of Portland, Oregon. It was a normal day. Kissed my girlfriend goodbye. I went to work. I remember we had gotten off work early because of the holiday. And as we're wrapping things up, my boss had joked with us and he said, okay, you guys go out and have a good time tonight. Do your thing. But please don't let me wake up and see you on the front page. Of course, we laugh it off. We all clock out for the day. Nobody thinks anything of it. Obviously, almost 20 years later, I've never forgotten those prophetic words. So I went straight to the liquor store. I bought a fifth of gin at about 1130. I then went to my parents' house to hang out with my twin brother because that's where he was living at the time. So I get to my parents' house and I hang out with my twin brother. And then he and I had made plans for later that night to attend a friend's house party, a guy we had gone to high school with. So after I drank that fifth of gin by myself over the course of two or three hours or so, as is customary, I went to the store. I bought my four 24-ounce cans of beer, which if you're doing a quick math on that, that's 96 ounces of beer that I drank between the hours of five and eight o'clock that night. And so at about eight o'clock, 8.30, my my brother and I decided we would go to another friend's house in the meantime to hang out because we didn't want to get to the party too early. So we get to that friend's house. The three of us drink a pint of Hennessy together. We kill some time. It's about 11 o'clock and we go to exit his apartment. And as we're walking out the door, warning number two, his mother yells from the kitchen. Now, y'all be careful tonight. You hear? Of course, we all said, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. We're good. But we had no intentions of being careful that night. Let's be clear. So we get to the party. We see a bunch of old classmates. We have a lot of fun. We drink more alcohol, of course. We bring in the new year. Everything is great. We get into my vehicle and I take my friend home without incident. I then get back onto the freeway to take my brother home. And at this point, all I'm thinking about is how exhausted I am and I can't wait to get him 
a.m. home because I still had another, you know, half hour or so to drive to my house, Vancouver, and I didn't have to work the next day. So I want to get home. So on the freeway, I began to elevate my speed to about 80 miles an hour. And this makes my brother nervous. And he's like, hey, man, you know, you should slow down. You know, the police are out. It'd be in a holiday and all. And I thought for a second or two, I'm like, well, that makes sense, right? So I went ahead and slowed down. And we exit the freeway about 10 minutes later. And we're now driving in a residential area. And again, I get impatient. I just want to you know, quickly get him home. So I began to pick up my speed now to about 60 miles an hour in like a 30 or 35 zone. This time my brother, you know, he grows impatient with me and he begins to yell, man, slow down before we crash. And I snapped back at him, man, calm down. I know what I'm doing. I've got this. But just to appease him and keep him quiet, I went ahead and slowed down. So we continue to drive and I'm just about to get into the left-hand turning lane to take him home to our parents' house. And then he suddenly realizes he's all out of cigarettes. So he says, hey man, let's go up the road so I can get some cigarettes, I'm all out. And in my mind, I'm thinking, great, right? Here's one more stop that I don't wanna have to make. So, you know, begrudgingly, I go ahead and drive two blocks from my parents' house. I'm looking at the intersection that is two more blocks ahead. And the, the, the story we need to get to is just beyond the intersection. So I'm looking up at the light and the light is yellow. And as intoxicated as I was, I knew there was no way I was going to make this light. There was just no way. But it didn't matter because in a split second, I made up my mind, I'm not going to wait. I'm going right through. So I immediately punched the gas and I'm in a newer model vehicle. So I, I accelerate quickly and I'm almost tunnel vision looking straight forward. I don't see anything to the left or right. And literally within seconds, just boom. I mean, just this earth shattering crash. And I remember the airbag deploys and it's, it's smothering my face. It feels like I'm being suffocated by a parachute. And my car comes to a slow winding halt. And I immediately look to my right to see if my brother's okay. And he's, he's moving. And so I'm somewhat relieved that we're both alive. And a guy comes rushing up to the driver's side door frantically. You know, are you guys okay? Are you guys okay? Yeah, we're okay, I tell him. And I step out of my vehicle. And my first instinct, sadly, was not to go check on the people I had just hit, but rather to assess the damage on my car because this was this was my prized possession, right? It was it was my status symbol that conveyed that I was somebody. It was a nice car, it had nice rims, I worked hard for it, and I'm devastated because it's now in a heap of crumpled metal. And then my brother gets my attention and he starts to point across the street where the car had spun about, I don't know, 60 or 70 feet before it came to a stop. And he's pointing over there and he says, hey man, he said, I think I see somebody lying down on the pavement over there and I don't think they're moved. So instantly it, it starts to resonate the magnitude of what I had just done. But obviously there's no time to process anything because lights and sirens just everywhere rushing to the scene. And the policemen are on the scene. And so they're talking to me and they take my brother a few feet away to talk to him. And about two or three minutes into that interview, that officer had confirmed to me what I had already suspected, which was that person who was lying on the pavement had perished. And they informed me that another was being driven to hospital by ambulance just you know, blocks away. So I'm placed under arrest and I'm put into the back of the cruiser and we head for downtown for processing. And from the back seat, I'm listening to the police radio because there's a lot of chatter about the crash, as you can imagine. About 10 minutes into that ride downtown, it comes over the police radio that unbeknownst to me, apparently there was another passenger who was in the vehicle and was pronounced dead at the scene. And so I had to get confirmation. I said, excuse me, sir. I said, did I just hear that correctly? Did they just say that somebody else was in the vehicle and they didn't make it? He said, unfortunately, yes. So there's now two deaths. There's one on his way to the hospital with life-threatening injuries who could lose his life in the coming days on one hand. And then on the other hand, I am keenly aware of the, the mandatory minimum sentencing laws in the state of Oregon that require 
no ifs, ands, or buts about it, that absolutely require a mandatory 120 months, day for day, for DUI manslaughter. And now I've got two of them. So I know without a doubt that I'm going to prison for nearly 20 years at the age of 24. So to say that that was, that was you know, the worst day in many people's lives would, would be a gross understatement. So I remember it was about three or four days later, I am sitting in my cell, I'm just minding my own business. And I noticed that someone has slid the Oregonian newspaper, which is our statewide newspaper. They had slid it underneath our, my, my cell door and I couldn't understand why because I didn't ask to see a paper. But I figured there must be something in there important for me to read, right? So I pick it up and I begin to thumb through this paper and I see my picture on the front page of one of the sections. And so with each paragraph that I read that morning for the first time in days, my faceless victims have become people. And these people had a story. And their story story was that they were recovering addicts who had actually turned their lives around and were now helping others get clean and sober. They had devoted their lives to helping women get clean and sober. They would watch women's children so that these ladies could attend AA and NA meetings. They were volunteers with Volunteers of America and with Mothers Against Drunk Driving, no less. The night that this happened, they were returning home from a clean and sober New Year's Eve party at the convention center when they were struck and killed by a drunk driver. So the columnist had talked about the irony, called it a palpable irony, that these people who had devoted their lives to helping people get clean and sober were killed by a drunk driver. And then he says something at, at the end of the article that changed the course of my life forevermore, even to this day. He said, perhaps the person they will have I've ended up helping the most is the man who's charged with killing. Me. And it was such a heavy statement. And, you know, but I couldn't fully appreciate the value in what he had just said because I'm still grappling with the fact that I'm going to prison for for almost 20 years, if not longer. So I didn't understand how this situation was, was possibly going to help me, but I also couldn't ignore what I had just read. So I remember for the next, I don't know, six or seven, eight months, I would literally meditate on that phrase. I would hear it when I would wake up and go to breakfast. I would hear it as I'm walking around the track in the afternoon. I would hear it when I'm laying my head down to go to sleep at night. And I just kept trying to understand how these words were supposed to apply to my life. And then it finally came to me and I always tell people, you know, it didn't come from some thunderous voice from the heavens, was not revealed in some vivid dream or anything supernatural, but rather in, in me just firmly understanding that the only way this tragedy will not be in vain and will not remain a simple tragedy is if I carry on these people's legacies, right? If I literally make it my life's mission to do everything I possibly can, not just to prevent others from drinking and driving, which of course is, is, you know, a signature part of what I do, but to help those who are struggling in active addiction so that they don't have to continue to cause further harm to themselves and, and people around and their families and, and communities and, and society at large. And so in that moment, that's, that's what I vowed to do. I didn't know what that would look like. I didn't know how that would take shape. I didn't even know how long I was going to be in prison, right? I mean, we're only three or four days removed from this tragedy. There'd be a long, you know, process that's, that's got to take take place before I would know what any of that would look like. But I knew that I was committed to the cause. And so that's when I made that determination that day. Everything that you just said, uh, I think Alyssa and I are both kind of gathering some emotions right now because that's that a very emotional experience on both sides, on both sides. You said many lives were, were taken that night and to make sure that it wasn't done in vain, 
you you made a promise, but first you heard these words that the man who killed was responsible for the death of these sober, service-working advocates. Palpable irony that these are the people whose lives he took, took and the one that he impacted greatly. Perhaps what we can get out of this tragedy is for the man responsible for taking their lives for him to be saved throughout this journey. Whoever said that was a brilliant man. I don't know who that was, but that is someone that is can see that things don't happen by coincidence. That there was a reason that the vehicle that you impacted, the lives you impacted, were service service workers in substance abuse and that was what you dedicated the rest of your life to because it could have been it could have been a car full of lawyers or a car full of you know um anybody businessmen and women i don't know people just partying but that's not who was in that vehicle there were three people in that vehicle who were in recovery and actively providing service to other people in recovery and when you learned that and you came to realization of what kind of man you wanted to be after this tragedy you wanted to continue their legacy and their work that is not a coincidence right and I, I firmly, firmly agree with you on that. I don't believe in coincidences as well. I, you know, it's, but I'm careful in how I frame this because it was a tragedy, right? And and I would never want anybody to to take away that. Oh well, well you know, it, it just it just had to happen. These people had to lose their lives so that he could be saved, and right? I, I like I just I don't want to don't want that to be the takeaway for anybody. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I am a firm believer in things happening happening in in kind of a divine order if you will and so i don't know i'll just leave it at that because i don't want to right on the flip on the flip side of that that vehicle could have been impacted by somebody who had no value who didn't have respect for the people and the family that they hurt the tragedy that they caused you are somebody who did that. And just like you said, not to diminish the tragedy, the families. And so I see, I definitely see where you tread lightly with that, of course. But the fact that you did see that opportunity to continue their work, not everybody in that situation would have done, would have chosen to do that. Well, and and I, and I appreciate that. And you're right. I mean, I, I, I saw it, you know, up close. I mean, literally three or four days after my crash happened, and there was another crash that happened where a, a drunk driver killed a mother and her son in a crosswalk, crosswalk. And she totally denied any responsibility, took it to trial, tried to plead innocent, you know, was ultimately convicted, but sentenced to a fraction of what I got, right? She got six years, three months, you know, from a judge after trying to fight it the whole way. And I took a plea bargain for 17 and a half years, right? So make of it what you will. But, you know, for me to, for me to have taken the route that I've taken to honor their lives and things like that i'll tell you i'll tell it's it's simple for right if somebody had done this to my family member my loved one mom dad brother sister whomever what would i want the final outcome to be for that person who had who had done 
this, right? Would I want them to just go to prison for 17 and a half years or, or however long, right? Time really doesn't matter. Would I want them to go to prison, do their time, get out, go on with their life as though this never happened? Or would I want them to learn everything they could about, you know, where they went wrong in life and understand the nature of their addiction and, and, and turn that into something that's going to benefit others who are struggling in active addiction, right? Speak at DUI Victim Impact Panel so that people understand the gravity of drinking and driving and the irreversible consequences that result, right? Would I want them to kind of carry that torch so that others don't have to follow in their footsteps? So if, if that is what I would hope the outcome would be for that person, then what excuse do I have to not, to not do that, right? I mean, it's literally as simple as that for me anyway. So let me ask you, Martin, how did you deal with, and I'm sure this is probably an ongoing thing for you, how did you start to identify and work on that guilt and that shame that you felt? And because that's something we all have, but we all did not cause a tragedy at the level that you did. So that's a really good question. And I'll tell you, um, it doesn't plague me today. Um, I have I have thoroughly navigated that process. It was an arduous process. It took about three to four years, if I'm being honest with you. The first three to four years of my sentence, although I had made this vow and this promise to the family members that I was going to do everything I can to, you know, use my time to, you know, get into the, the, the you know, the field of, of substance abuse uh, counseling and, and, and speaking and, and things like that. You know, a part of me was being held back by the, the shame, not the guilt, because guilt, I think, is inherently different than shame. We can unpack that later if you want to. But the, but, but the shame of it, 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 it would cripple me for the entire month of December for the first three or four years where I would literally make myself relive every vivid detail of that night for the whole month of December, right? So that meant I wasn't going out to work out. I wasn't playing sports like I normally would. I wasn't going to the chow hall to, you know, just have social time. I was on my bunk. I was pressed. I was, you know, in, in just this, just this, this miserable state because somehow in a weird twisted way, I felt that that was me honoring my victims' lives by not forgetting, right? By by torturing myself with every vivid detail of what happened for an entire month, which was utterly wasted energy that I could have been, you know, putting into this cause that I had, you know, uh, uh, promised I would do. And so, you know, after that third or fourth year, I finally just, you know, I said, you know what, this is not, this is not me honoring the promise that I made, right? This is me wasting an entire, you know, month of energy where I could be better using that, that, that energy into, you know, into what I said I was going to do. And so just, you know, once I kind of put it in those terms, it, I, I shed myself of that shame. No more. I would not allow myself or to, to, to put myself through that because I, that was not helping me. It was not helping me toward this mission. It was not bringing my victims back, right? And it, 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 it was only keeping me stagnant for an entire month. And I just refused to, to continue to allow that to happen. And so that was when I, I fully thrust myself into this and, and, and you know, I'm, I'm so grateful I did. And I do not feel an ounce of shame over what happened because every single day I make it my life's mission to honor my 
to honor my word. I do it in my nine to five. I do it in my, you know, uh, speaking, you know, uh, which we'll talk about, but I speak at DUI victim impact panels uh, remotely. I speak all throughout Oregon. I speak at high schools. Uh, I speak to minors who have gotten their first minor in possession charge. And uh, I've got a few other entities that I'm looking to, looking to start uh, speaking to pretty soon here as well. So, you know, I will lean on that work um, as, as a promise being fulfilled. And that is my shield from the shame that I would otherwise uh, likely feel. I'm gonna say, how were you able to fulfill those promises behind bars? What did you do in there to kind of keep those promises going throughout the years that you were in there? So I knew that if I was going to help people in active addiction, then I probably should start with getting an, an education so that I could become a, a substance abuse counselor, right? That's the quickest way to, to help people struggle. So I, I started to take whatever classes I could take. And at that point, they were offering one community college course per term for 25 bucks. And I would take that. And, you know, I figured if I take enough of these, I mean, I guess they'll give me a degree at some point. I don't really know how this works. I had a GED at that point, so I didn't really know how the college thing worked. And so I started doing that. And, you know, uh, I'm starting to take some psychology courses, sociology classes, starting to understand, you know, from from these kind of scientific standpoints, the origins of my addiction and, you know, what a, a healthy self-concept is and stages of psychosocial development and, you know, cognitive development and, and, and these factors, both, you know, environmental, societal and individual factors that all play a part um, in, in somebody succumbing to, uh, you know, addiction and things like that. And so it started to make sense from that standpoint. And fast forward three years, I lost my dad very unexpectedly. Um, but in, in, in that happening, I was able to secure the funding to be able to finance my own education because contrary to what a lot of people believe, you know, the government, state or federal does not finance degrees for people in prison. That went away in the 90s during the tough on crime era. So if you want an education beyond high school or beyond a GED, you have to finance that. So I was able to start taking classes from Louisiana State University and Indiana University because we don't have internet. And, and so those were a few of the universities that were offering classes, you know, through the mail. So they were sending the packet. You have your book sent in from Amazon. If you have somebody on the outside who order it for you and, you know, you have your exams proctored and all that. And so I was able to start doing that. And I, I parlayed all of that into uh, an associate's degree in 2010 from Indiana University. And then I got a bachelor's in sociology from Colorado State in 2013. And then I went on to get a master's in psychology from California Coast University in 2016. And so I had all the education behind me, but if I was going to become a counselor, I still needed to get some clinical hours toward that. Well, there was no program in, in the Oregon Department of Corrections that, 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 that had anything like that. So I transferred to the one prison that actually had a substance use disorder treatment program within the prison, which is a whole nother issue that there would be, you know, <laughs> so few resources for that when 80% of us who are incarcerated are there, you know, in some way, shape or form, you know, for drugs and or alcohol. But I was fortunate enough to go there and I talked to the clinical director and I kind of gave him my story and I said, 
said, you know, my goal is to get certified. You know, is there any way I could possibly work under you to get these hours? He said, well, you know, we don't really do that. But he was impressed with how much money and time I had put into my education that he, he made the exception. So he said, okay, he said, I'm going to try to get clearance from my boss because you only you had to have like six months or less to do his program. I still had like five years. And he said, well, let me try to see if I can get clearance. And he said, but I'm going to need you to go through the program as a participant first, and then you can start working on, you know, these, these intern hours. And so he got clearance. I went through the program. And when I went through that program, so I had five and a half years left. This was in 2016. And I had thought all the way, you know, up to this point that I was in recovery, right? I hadn't drank in, you know, uh, what was it, 12 years at that point. So I thought I was in recovery. But I'm going through this program and I'm learning, no, dude, you're just sober. You're not in recovery, right? The, the absence of, of the substance is not recovery. That's sobriety. And so I'm starting to learn about, you know, all the, you know, internal triggers and external because I just oh you avoid people places and things and you got it lit well that wasn't really my thing like I have these internal triggers of self-pity and entitlement and you know all these other things going on that can easily trigger me back to drinking and so I'm starting to you know develop you know a, a relapse prevention plan and understanding you know this biopsychosocial spiritual model of recovery and you have to have this balanced approach to different aspects of your life because all these aspects were were you know impacted in your addiction so now you have to you know kind of in a balanced way, give attention to all these aspects to have a healthy, strong recovery with these anchors and blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, and then I started going to AA, right? They have volunteers who would come and they would do AA and NA meetings every week. And just as they do out here, they have speaker meetings and open meetings, you know, big book meetings and all these different meetings. And I started to go there and and it was just such an eye opening, you know, just uplifting experience to be bonding with people who understood what I had lived with for all those years. Because I have have a twin brother and I love him to death, but I cannot talk to him about addiction because he doesn't understand, right? So you have to find people who get you. You have to find people who have been where you've been. And so that was really, really empowering to get all this added, you know, knowledge on top of my, you know, formal education and things like that. And then I started to work in the program and now I'm, I'm mentoring guys one-on-one, -on -one, right? And, and, and I'm logging those hours, but in mentoring these guys, I mean, guys are starting to open up about childhood trauma, molestation, you know, these these things that you just don't talk about in prison, right? Like you cannot be vulnerable in this setting. People will eat you alive. But this was such a safe space and people trusted me because I was consistent in the way that I carried myself in prison. They didn't see me hanging out with these guys over here. They didn't see me walking around the yard with my, you know, my shirt off and, you know, my chest poked out and the meme up. Like they saw this guy is about his education. I was a, I was a tutor at the time, so I'm, I'm you know, tutoring guys with their GEDs and things like that. They saw me working with guys on a unit. I volunteered my personal time. They saw that I was, I was, you know, I was who I said I was basically. And so that, that garnered trust from them. And I was able to have some real, real um, impactful conversations and helping guys with their transitional plans and things like that. And, um, and so that was real, that was reaffirming to me that the counseling is exactly where I need to be. Right. So I did that program for, uh, two, two and a half years. I got all my clinical hours. I got certified first as a recovery mentor in 2018. And then I got certified the following year as a substance abuse counselor. And so at this point, I'm starting to also get involved with the DUI victim impact panels within the prison. So 
they would bring in volunteers from the outside who had lost loved ones to DUI drivers. And they would come in and tell their story. And then one of us on the inside would tell our story about how we were the offender of this type of crime. And it's a room of 50 inmates sitting in a circle. And they're all there volunteering. Some of these guys are never going home. They got double life. I mean, you name it, they were in that room. And I am telling you, it was so cathartic. There were tears. There were hugs. There was empathy and passion and like that was a sanctuary because the minute guys left that room all that went away the mean mug came back up wall came back up got to play the part for the next you know six and a half days until we can meet again the following week and so that was when i started to to you know share my story and made some connections uh that allowed me to when i got out last year in, in june uh, i was able to immediately start speaking at dui victim impact panels i recorded my story while i was still inside and they put it on youtube and it was widely circulated throughout the country during the pandemic when all the panels shut down and they had to create this virtual content so all I think all 50 states probably, uh, I still get messages today where they've been showing my video in their classes for years and they're thanking me for my story and things like that. And uh, it's just been really, really um, encouraging to know that my story has impacted, you know, thousands that I'll never meet, frankly, don't have to. It's not the point, but to know that people at least think twice about drinking and driving uh, for having seen my story and uh, for listening to it on podcasts like these. And, um, you know, just to just to kind of put a cap on it, I, I work as a substance abuse counselor today remotely right here from my home office. I talk to people on the National Suicide Prevention Line as well. So I'm sitting with people in their darkest, you know, their darkest hour and I'm offering them hope. And then I connect them with resources in whatever locale they live in so that they can have ongoing care and treatment. Um, it's, it's an absolute honor. Speak at DUI victim impact panels, speak at high schools and uh, looking to get connected with some more entities to do some more speaking. That's a lot. That's a lot of advocacy work, a lot of professional professional work, a lot of personal time. Yeah, I see your head shaking. You know, you're doing this 24-7. Not only it's passion, it's it's life. Well, it is life. And 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 I know it sounds like a lot, but I, I make sure that I live a balanced life. So even though I've got all that, like I've since I've been out almost uh what 15 months now, a little over 15 months, I've gone skydiving, I'm surfing, I've gone, you know, uh, uh you know, rock climbing, I've been to the Bahamas, I've been to Vegas. I've been to DC. I've been like, I, I live right. And I'll tell you, I'm living my best life, right? I'm living my best life. But here's the thing, like six months before I got out, if I'm being honest with you, I'm starting to get a little worried and anxious because I'm starting to think, okay, I'm about to get out and actually, you know, make a real attempt at this sober lifestyle that I hadn't had prior to the age of 14. And I'm thinking, man, it's just going to be so freaking boring that I just like, I just can't do it. Right. Even though I've got all this knowledge and all this momentum and all this good will i'm wondering is this life going to be worth it sober and let me just tell you 15 months and counting later like i have lived my best life i live in a beautiful home i just we just put this giant pool in the backyard i didn't even know how to swim i took swim lessons from may until last month right so i don't drown in my pool i now know how to swim now i'm not going to be competing with michael phelps anytime soon but i mean at 43 years old to learn how to swim at least somewhat i don't think that's pretty bad um, you know, it's not too bad. So, you know, again, I'm going to going to uh, uh, no DC in a couple of weeks. Here, I'll be going to Houston next month. Uh, probably going back to Portland in in in, uh, in January, and might be going to New Orleans in February. I am just like I travel. I you know I I I love and, and even though like speaking at panels and schools and stuff like that, yeah, it's 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 technically you know work, but it's not like like I 
I, I literally, I enjoy doing what I do, right? Because I get to, I, I get to share, I get to keep these people's memories and legacies alive. It's just a beautiful thing. And I get to connect with people that I otherwise would not have connected with, right? People come up to me after these events all the time. Oh my goodness. I, I was, I was, I was so touched by what you said. You know, this easily could have happened to me because I'm talking to people who have gotten their first DUI, right? So they're mandated to go to these, these panels and hear people like me speak and you make that connection and you can see that what you said landed right and this is it's just an awesome thing so you know i love my job my nine to five i love speaking i just love my life like it yeah. is an awesome incredible life and it's sober so i can remember what i did the next day and that is a priceless thing isn't it beautiful it is so beautiful <laughs> it really is and you know when you were there talking on your panels to these these people you're speaking language of the heart you're speaking the truth you're speaking the reality darkness you were in that right. you were experiencing what you felt after the tragedy how you picked yourself up from the tragedy how you found a way to honor these people and how you followed through you did not give up on yourself you at six months before you were almost released from prison you had fear in your fucking heart and in your mind because you were like damn i have worked so hard i have i have done all so much i have to be successful. I do not know if I'm going to be successful. I haven't even lived outside of prison for almost 20 fucking years, right. let alone being a successful service psych, what, social worker, you yeah, know? Yeah. And let alone having, so getting out and having that kind of professional job. But also, you were how old? When you went into prison? I was 24. You were 24. I got out at 42. So the numbers were burst. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you had no idea how to even live life. You had a lot of weight on your shoulders, I'm sure. And there was a lot of fear. And rightfully so. What did you do? What did you do to get through that? Well, I, I you know, I... In prison, if you're successful in prison, it, you know, you have structure, right? You have structure. And so I knew it was going to be paramount that I maintained that structure when I got out. But before that, right, before you get a job and you start going to meetings and figuring out, you know, where things are and how you do things, you know, I had the support, I had the support of my amazing fiance, I had the support of my family, right? And so a lot of people, sadly, they get out of prison and they've got all this momentum and they're thinking, you know, with a clear head and everything, but they're by themselves, right? They don't have that support. So I had that that social network to lean on to help me to navigate a, a technologically advanced world, right? I mean, when I went in, it was, you know, MySpace was the was the social media and my phone was a little Nokia, little push phone, no cameras on phones and videos and, you know, apps and stuff like that so i had to learn all of that because you don't get you don't you don't get trained on that stuff in prison because they just don't have it right so you know thankfully i had people around me to kind of you know um hold my hand and walk me through these things even going to a grocery store and being inundated with you know just all this stimuli there's bright colors and signs and you know little babies and like i hadn't heard i didn't realize that i hadn't heard a baby's cry for almost 20 years so I remember when it hit my ears the first time and, you know, people were looking around and, you know, probably getting agitated, wishing the baby would shut up. But for me, it was it was such a welcome sound because it was like I had not heard that for almost 20. Years. And so that was like that was like my welcome home, Martin. You're in the real world again moment. 
right? And so I had, it took time to settle into that. I remember for the first three weeks, I was completely and utterly exhausted, not because I had done any, you know, strenuous work or anything, but just processing all the new information that was coming at me seemingly, you know, a million miles a minute. And so, um, you know, I had to be patient with myself and, and just kind of take it again, one step at a time, one day at a time, you know, the whole AA mantra, you know, one day at a time. So, um, I really instill that and, and live by that and live by that today and, and hopefully will for the rest of my life and not allow myself to get too overwhelmed and too consumed with the future and things that are beyond my control and saying the serenity prayer and just, you know, all these little tools and, and little, you know, tidbits of, of positive self-talk and affirmation that I picked up along the way. Um, that have kind of kept me grounded today. So so I do want to ask you something. I know we're coming toward the end of our time with you. So I want to read a, read a quote that is a quote of yours. Mental health and substance use are not things to be condemned, made fun of, or be ashamed of. They are not burdens meant to be borne alone. They are conditions of humanity that ought to be treated humanely. I want to ask you, when you were in prison, did you witness fellow inmates experiencing mental health and substance use disorder receiving humane treatment for their disease? Unfortunately, so so there are there are, you know, countless uh, you know, countless number of inmates who are afflicted with serious chronic uh mental health disorder you know forget the substance use that's 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 one thing which we know there's a lot of overlap between the two right people self-medicate when they have you know uh mental health disorders um so yes i saw it and i also saw the treatment of the officers and even of these you know purportedly mental health counselors who would constantly turn them away if they were in a crisis and because it was, you know, wasn't their scheduled time to go see their counselor, even though they live right there on the unit, the counselor's office is right there on the mental health unit, right? But they would turn them away all the time, um, you know, or, or or you would just see the officers just, you know, ridicule them and 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 speak down, you know, talk down to them, and you know, it was just like I just like your heart breaks because and 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 me as an inmate, I can, you know, uh, you know catch them by themselves and hey, say, you know, hey, how you doing? You just want to talk about something and I can try to do what I can, but I'm only with them for, you know, 15 or 20 minutes. You know, they still got 23 hours of the day, 23 and a half hours of the day to live in this environment that, you know, treats them as though, I mean, we're already treated as, you know, second class citizens, but they're even lower than us. Right. Because they have this affliction that, you know, maybe makes them appear a little different or they don't respond you know, the way that you expect somebody to respond to something. And so, yeah, it was it was an atrocity, um, the ways in which they were treated and demeaned and dehumanized. It just goes to show how much there's so much work to be done on in this topic in general. But in our in our public, private prisons, jail systems, um we are just there's so much work to be done for these inmates and these people that are people that need right. help and i i also saw something um you had said about you know writing letters to inmates and um 
you know, all obviously bringing meetings into whatever prison or jails will let people bring meetings into them because they won't all do that. I have no idea why, um, because that just baffles me. Um, But simply reaching out to an inmate via a handwritten note providing some kind of hope like, hey, we're two totally different people. I might not know your story. You don't know my story. But here's something that I know that we can relate on. And let me tell you how I found hope. Maybe think about how you can find hope and who you can talk to. And like just making them feel and remember the fact that they are fucking human beings. Right. Right. At the end of the day, that's, that's all we, you know, we all want to just be validated and treated like a human being. And just because we commit a crime or offend society legally and, and, you know, be sent off to, uh, you know, a prison or a jail does not strip us of our humanity. Right. Now, you know, in many ways that that is exactly what happens. Um, but, you know, it, it, objectively, we are still human, right? No matter no matter how you try to paint us. Um, and so if that could be conveyed, like you said, in, in, in many ways um, or in more ways, that would certainly go a long way, because I think the more you dehumanize people and strip them of that humanity, in, in a dark place, in all, in a place that's already a dark place, I think you just, you just kind of, um, foster those, um, you know, those, those problem areas, those right? Behaviors. They went into the, exactly. You exacerbate so they, the behavior. Exactly. And mm-hmm. so they get out and, and things cause resentment. I didn't get any help. So I know there's a lot of things that we did not touch on with you, Martin, as far as you authoring two books that are, very inspiring from your experiences in prison and prison to purpose and kind of that transition a lot more of the advocacy that you do and just there's a lot we didn't get to touch on but a lot that we did and I thank you so much for sharing such a uniquely devastating experience in active addiction and turning it into something that was not done in vain, something that gives back to others, thing that reminds you every single day of the life you do not want to live and something that Uh, hopefully is planting a seed in the minds of the people that you're speaking to. Thank you so much for what you do with what you have gone through. Because not everybody decides to make that kind of choice with their life after something like that. Thank you. Well, thank you guys again so very much for having me. You guys do awesome work. I've listened to your podcast. They're very relatable. Um, You know, you guys have a way of just having a conversation. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very conversational about, you know, really tough topics, but topics that people need to obviously hear and they certainly, you know, resonate with and, and hopefully it helps them. And I know it helps them in some way. And so thank you again for allowing me uh, to speak with you guys today.
Um, you know, thank you for everything you do, living on the legacy of the people who had passed, just continuing, just enjoy life and shine and just give back to the community because we all need it right now with everything going on in the world. And, you know, just thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. I'm really grateful you were able to be on the show tonight. Likewise. Thank you guys. Thank you so much to all our listeners. If you liked what you heard, tune in next Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern time for another episode of Salty Moms Gone Sober. Be there or be square. And in the meantime, stay salty, stay sober, stay sane. Peace.